0: and I'm so excited to welcome you to Real Woman Real Tora, a project of Vachetta Learning Center. We're here to offer you an authentic Torah learning experience produced for woman by woman. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to Demystifying Kchosneita, a podcast series with Mrs. Rifki Kaplan, in which we'll explore the historical background and underlying halachic principles behind the laws of Nida. Mrs. Kaplan is a shloka teacher, lecturer, and Uetza Halacha with over 20 years of experience teaching and mentoring women in the area of Tahar Samushbacha. She will be building on her experience and expertise in Hilchus Nida to give us a deeper appreciation for the halachas that we practice every single day. Please keep in mind while listening that this series is intended for educational purposes only and should not replace seeking qualified rabbinic guidance for any application to practical halachic scenarios. Our goal for this series is to enhance your observance of Tahar Swam and to inspire you to observe the halachas in the most optimal way. Please note that each individual episode is only one part of a bigger picture. So we encourage you to listen to all the episodes in the series in order to get a complete understanding of the content we discuss here. This episode is sponsored by Goldie Markowitz, in honor and appreciation of her parents, V and Devora Markowitz. Thank you so much. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to our series on Hilchos Nida with Mrs. Rofky Kaplan. Um, if you listened to our last episode, we talked about the concept of Nida and Zava um in the context of the Pesukim and the Torah, and how those um, t- um types of Tumah were um treated and practiced um back in the day in the times of the of Mikdash. And the way we um approach um you know the Tumma of Nida today is very different. And in our, today's episode we're gonna sort of talk about how and when things changed and developed into the um the way that we actually uh, practice that the laws of Niddah today, um, and along the way, we're going to sort of have a discussion about the concepts of D'oraisa, D'rabbanan, Minhag, how all those different aspects of um, Halacha sort of um, come into play when it comes to our practical observance of Halacha.
1: Amazing! Yeah, it's good to be back, um, Hadassah? And um, this is a very critical element of the whole discussion because this is when we're going to bridge the gap between what was, um, as we discussed in the last episode, primarily nidado raita, and what is, and how we practice it today, right? So it's really going to be about the why, the when, and the how things changed. But before I get into the practical aspects of it, and it's going to ultimately be in three phases, I want to just give like a very important um, intro to the concept of change in halacha, Right? So we know that halacha is from the notion of like going, like it walks us through life. It's the original GPS, if you want to call it that. And um, and yet inside our Messiah, there is somewhat of a paradox. And what I mean by that is that there's a particular element that's dynamic. And then there's an element that's absolute static, the bedrocks of which nothing shifts. And we're doing things exactly the way Moshe Rabbeinu gave them to us back in the day when they came down from Sinai, right? So what generally falls under the categories of static? So those are the principles, the bedrocks, like the isodot, the very foundations on which everything is built. And it's exactly like we said, it's steadfast, it's essential, and it is non-negotiable. So the dynamic element, the second element, which is what we're going to be focused on, it gives way to the evolutionary process, which is part and parcel of the process of time. But what we have to remember, and this cannot be emphasized enough, is that when and if halacha evolves, i.e., when the dynamic aspect of halacha is activated, it is always, it always involves in one direction in the direction to strengthen, to safeguard, to ensure the safety and the non negotiability of the static element of halacha. Okay? So there are certain things that will never change. And then there will certain things that will change in order to safeguard and ensure that the non-negotiables remain non-negotiables. Okay. So when we're going to look at, for t- example, today, sometimes people call it a takana, some xera. You're going to give us reference to the notion of minhag, etc. We have to remember that it always evolves in one direction, upwards, only to ensure a better, um, ability with the changing of the times that we're going to be keeping the foundations exactly in place, right? So that's one important point that I want to uh, make sure that we hold on to, because often when we say the notion of halacha changes, it shakes you up and it should shake you up because we know there are other practices within Yiddishkeit where there's a lot of change in halacha, so to speak. And, you know, we can see where that's taken us. But that's not at all what we're referring to. We're referring to a change in halacha in a upward, i.e., in a more in a in a direction that will ensure that the static elements of halacha, the fundamentals, the bedrocks, remain safe in place, right? So that's criteria number one that it moves in the direction of
0: safekeeping. I just want to add to that, Rifki, if um, if you don't mind that you know even I, I think even um, you know th- th- uh, changes in halacha that seem to be Like, they're taking a step back. Like, for example, the classic example is Rabi Yudanesi writing down the Mishnah, right? Which the Torah Shalapa was meant to be oral, and all of a sudden we're writing it down. But I think it's important to realize that the justification for writing it down was which means we are desecrating a halakha in the Torah, but because that's what's necessary to to strengthen the entire Torah, right? And that's true of, like, any other um, sort of you know, change in Allah, which seems to be a compromise, you know, superficially, but it's only because we've, the times demanded that in order to strengthen Tyra and make it even stronger as a whole, we needed to um, sort of adapt to the times in certain ways. Um, So it's important to realize that that's always the motivation for any change. Exactly.
1: So the adaption, even though at first glance, it may look like it's a compromise, you know, making things simpler, so to speak, or, getting away with something that they couldn't have gotten away with, it's always in a direction of, wait a second, things are changing. We need to ensure that even as the Jewish nation, you know, goes into galus and they no longer have the luxury that we have of transmitting it orally, the fundamentals will stay in place safely, right? And I'm so glad, Hadassah, that you mentioned the notion of Rabbi Nasi, because that's the other point that I wanted to bring out with Who is the one that really has the ability to make these changes in halacha? You know, it's not just, you know, even a bunch of wise people sitting around and deciding that the time has come. It takes really the giants uh, amongst us. And Rabbi Rabbi Yehuda Anasi is credited with some very, very critical changes, including like what you mentioned, you know, writing down for the very first time the oral tradition. And the change that we're going to talk about today is also. Partly attributed to Rabbi Yehuda Anassi. and I want to point something out about Rabbi Yehuda Nasi. I mean, the Rebbe actually discusses this in the Nasiha, and spoke about that when Rabbi Yehuda Nasi passes passed away. To a very large degree, the whole notion of humility passed away with him because he absolutely per- personified what humility looked like, acted like, led like. Okay, and with his passing, this notion, you know. Left because there was nobody that could quite live up to the way he was able to do what he needed to in this humble fashion. Why is that so important? Because when somebody leads from a position of humility, we know that there's no ulterior motive. There's no other agenda that's going on. His one and only concern was the Jewish people and ensuring that they would always have access to 100% 100% authentic Yiddishkeit and authentic Torah, and and that's what guided him. So it wasn't his Igor Rachman that got in his way. It wasn't some ulterior motive. There was no agenda, right? So that's the other thing that I want to point out is that a, we always move in the direction of safekeeping, and b, it's really critical who are the ones, who are the giants that set about to make these changes. Okay, so that having said that, let's get started with some of the state, what some of the um, with some of the changes. So I want to just point out, um, and I would encourage those of you that are listening to take the time to listen to the previous episode, because it'll help you appreciate that the the uh, the complexity of what it meant for the women that were keeping Do Doraita to keep it as accurately as possible. There was a lot of recording on a calendar that had to happen. There were a lot of intricacies. There were a lot of numbers. There was a lot of things that had to be taken into consideration. And um, we mentioned, for example, that to this day, in a sense, we don't really know exactly how they did it because even the giants amongst us, primarily Rambam and Rashi, they disagree with how the calendars were kept, which just goes to help us understand that it couldn't have been as simple as just counting one through seven and then, you know, additionally another day, 11 days, et cetera, and then starting again. There was was a lot that had to be taken into consideration. I remember this was a time, you know, obviously before clocks, before watches, before even pen and paper, okay? And so it it was complicated. It was complex. And that's important as a background as we begin to understand the changes that take place. So the first thing that's discussed in the Gemara, and actually, if anybody has a chance, um, and maybe we can include this in the show notes, the Rambam does like just an amazing overview of this whole history in like a very easy and understandable manner um, but the first place that it shows up, of course, is going to be in the Gemara. And the Gemara brings a number of examples of various Torah giants that were very hesitant to give rulings on the various bloods. So in other words, if a woman had a question and she was unsure if what she was seeing was actually blood. And if you remember last week, we spoke about, of course, that in order for something to be problematic, according to Dorite, it had to be blood. And particularly of a f- five different shades of red. And the Gemara lists exactly what those shades of reds were. And there were, of course, Torah giants that were trained in this fine art. And to the extent that if a woman mixed up her calendar and she wasn't sure if what she was seeing fell in the window of Nita or in the window of Zava, there were those Chachamim that by simply looking at it were able to differentiate whether it was Nita or Zava and whether it fell into one of those five very specific categories of red. But then at a certain point, they became very hesitant. And they were were they were like declining and they were saying, well, you know, if the other Torah giant in my city is not prepared to do it, I should take this upon myself. And even when they had visiting scholars, they said, wait a second, if the locals aren't prepared to do it, I should take this upon myself. And there's just like this very fascinating kind of like dialogue through the Gemara where one after another, the Chachamim were hesitant be, to give this rulings. Whether they felt that they had lost this fine art, whatever it was, they, they no longer felt that they had access to the accuracy that was necessary. And so the first um, shift happened was that instead of it having to be one particular of the five shades, it became if it's in the family of red. OK, so today when a woman has a question on something that she's found, it's not like is it this red or is it that that is it in the general family of red? Which is why we'll often guide um, women that if it's pink, it's it, it could be it's in the family of red. If it's a particular shade of brown, it actually could be in the family of red. That's a question. Something that she has to bring to, to halacha guidance. Something that she has to begin to learn and know the colors of her body, right? Obviously, if it's going to be yellow, it's not going to be a problem because yellow is not in the family of red, so to speak, okay? So that was the first change that happened, is that instead of having specific colors And I gave an example where it talks about the color of red like specific wine that was picked from this particular valley and it was diluted with this amount of water, that shade of red, that would be problematic. So they moved away from the specifics and it became more of a mainstream in the family of red, okay? Which in a way makes it much broader and much easier to give a ruling on, okay? So that was the first change that happened. The second change that happened, and it's um, quoted in the Gemara under the notion of Hitkin Rebbe Basadot. Okay, Hitkin Rebbe Basadot, referring to Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, who we mentioned earlier. So Rebbe passes a takana. Okay, he passes a law. Basadot. Now, Sadot is actually translated one of two ways. Less popularly, people actually say that it was the name of a particular village where this rule changed, the rule started. More popularly, it's understood quite literally as in the fields, meaning those families, those women who found themselves geographically further out, you know, in the less um, populated parts of the city, more out in the fields, more out in the country, if you will, i.e. meaning they had less access to those chachamim, right? And so if they had a question, it became even more difficult for them to find the ruling. And it was unfortunately leading to to a lot of, um, either the women were becoming too strict on themselves because maybe it's this, maybe it's that. And so, or they perhaps were assuming that it was okay and then they would be going to the mikveh before the time that it was necessary, it was permissible for them to go to the mikveh, etc. So it says, "Hitkin Rebbe Basadot. Rebbe makes a takana in the sadot. And he says as follows. He says, okay, I I see what's going on, and I recognize where this is going. Remember, Rebbe has this incredible foresight, okay, um, as quoted earlier in the notion where he realizes the time has come, you know, to do something that historically had never been done and had never even been permitted to do. And he says as follows, in contrast to what the women had been doing up until now, and I'm not going to go into details of that. Instead, I'm going to encourage you to... Um, listen to the previous episode, I'll just summarize it by saying that the two categories was a woman that was a nida, and if she was a nida, from the moment she saw blood, she remained in that state of nida for seven days. At the conclusion of those seven days, sorry, prior to the conclusion of those seven days, right, At, prior to sunset of the seventh day, she performed a hepsic tara to ascertain that her bleeding had actually stopped. And that very same day, after tzeta kochabim, so it could be like about an hour plus, depending on what time of the year it was, if her hafzikhtara was clean, she immersed in the mikvah, right? Now that meant that even if on day one, two, three, four, five, 5, she continued to bleed, even day 6, even day 7, so long as by sh- um, uh, shkia time of the 7th day, she had a clean hafzikhtara, she immersed in the mikvah that very night, right? The same would apply if she only bled on day number one, even if she only bled on day number one, she still remained a for those seven days, performed her hafzaktara and immersed in the mikvah, right? In contrast to the zava, okay, if she saw three consecutive days of bleeding in the window where she could have been ruled a zava, what she had to do then was count seven clean days, okay? So the seven clean days that we're familiar with Uh, applies to the Zaba. So what did Rebbe say? Rebbe said, look, we got a mainstream thing. We need to mainstream things. And I'm going to try to uh, impart as much as possible kind of like an overview of what he did without like bogging us down with the details. But even even in order to appreciate an overview, particular details are going to be necessary. Okay? So Rebbe said as follows, if a woman to see were to see bleeding for one day, she has to take all possible scenarios into play, right? So if she sees for one day, what could it be? She could possibly be a Zavachtana. Okay, no big deal, Zavachtana, they mean she has to wait one clean day and she immerses in the mikvah. Or if she sees for one day, it could possibly be that she's a Nida. And if she's a Nida, she cannot immerse in the mikvah until the conclusion of seven more days, right? So what does Rebbe say? Rebbe says, if a woman were to see one day, She counts an additional six clean days. This way she covers all bases. And at the conclusion of the six days, she does have sectara. And she immerses. And this way, there's a total of seven. So either if she's a Zavokhtana, she's taken care of. And even if she's a Nida, she's also taken care of, right? Now, if you notice, I said that she counts six clean days. Now, the clean is in a sense parenthetical. What do I mean by that? it's not six clean days as compared to the seven clean days because seven clean days is seven, right? So it's not that we're playing around with that number. But the reason it has to be six clean days is in order for her to get out of this space of where am I holding? So imagine a woman would wake up on a Sunday morning and she would see bleeding. She's totally lost track of her calendar. She, it's it's been, been way too complicated. It's been too complex. She doesn't have access to Chachamim. What is she supposed to do? So Rebbe says, Okay, maybe you're a Zavok Great. Maybe you're Anita. Now, what would happen if you're Anita? That means Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Matzay, Shabbos. After a successful Havsitara, you should be able to go to the mikvah. However, what would happen if all of a sudden, on Wednesday, she would start bleeding again? She would have the same question. Am I... Oh my gosh. I'm bleeding again? Wait a second. Does that mean I'm still anita? Does that mean I finished my Nidah? So... In order to get herself out of a place of doubt, she needed to have those six clean days, right? Is that making sense? Okay. Then, so that's what Rebbe said. So if she were to see for one day, plus six. If she were to see for two days, also plus six. Why? Hold on. Six plus two is eight. We've never met the number eight before yet. So then Rebbe says, okay, but we have to consider all the scenarios again. So again, if it's one day, if it's two days of bleeding, it could still be considered a zaviktana. So why do I need to have six more days? I could still be covered if I only had five more days. And if it's a nida, I could also be covered if I only had five more days. But Rabbi said, "Not so fast." What happens if the first day of bleeding was actually the last day of your zava window, and the second day of bleeding was only the beginning of your nida? So we have to take that into account. We really don't know. We can't just assume. There's no place for assumptions here, right? We have to go for the highest common denominator. So thereby, if a woman bled for two days, she would also count an additional six days. And this way, she again, she covered all bases. So another six clean days, and then she immersed in the mikvah. And then of course, if she bled for three consecutive days, right? She counts seven clean days. Why? If she's a Nida, then at the end of the seven clean days, for sure she's okay. But what if that was a Daila, And if she's a Zavagdala, then she would also be covered by that. Okay? So basically, in essence, what Rebbe did was, he moved us away from the need to know where we are at in our calendar in order to determine what Tumma we're experiencing in order to know what process of purification we now would have to begin. So he moves us away from that very complex, you know, intricate, time-consuming, confusing um, necessity. And instead he says, we're mainstreaming all of this. Take, we have to take everything into account and we're mainstreaming that, right? And but that, that, so that was step number two. Step number three, okay, in case you're thinking, wait, what? Was I taught Holocaust is wrong? I never heard about the one, two, three, right? Okay, no, you were not taught anything wrong because there was a third step. And the third step, the Gemara tells us, <laughs> The Jewish women took a stringency upon themselves. And what was this stringency? Okay. <laughs> even if they were to see a tiny drop of blood the size of a mustard seed, Yoshevet Aleha, Shivat Nikiem, they would observe seven clean days. So with the passing of time, the next generation of leadership, Rebzerra notices something very fascinating.. <laughs> this came from the women themselves. The women themselves felt, that the mainstreaming that Reb Yehuda had nasi had done was still too complicated, and so they took on a stringency that even if they were to see bleeding for one day, and even if it wasn't this like huge flow of bleeding, but they knew that it came from the rechen and it was accompanied by our Gasha, they would yoshevat aleha And that Rebbe, not excuse me, Reb Zera notices this chumrah. And he classifies it as halacha. Okay. And I want, Hadassah, I know you have something to say on this, but I want to just finish this thought and then I'd love to hear. Um, so I want to just tell you, for example, you know, because somebody, some of you might be thinking, what were these women thinking? Like, seriously? You know, so I just want to tell you that some of the reasons that are offered as to what were the women thinking. So part of the reasoning is as follows. The women said like this, they said, look, if I were to be counting Shivanakiyam and in the middle of my seven clean days, I would suddenly see blood for one day, even if it was a drop of blood the size of a mustard seed, it has the strength to cancel my seven clean days and I would have to start from new. So they sort of felt if it has the strength to do that, it deserves the respect of its own seven clean days, right? So that was one concern. The other concern that they had was, which gives us an insight to how incredible these women were, they said like this, maybe I thought that I saw bleeding for two days, but really it was for three because it started prior to Shkia and I only noticed it after Shkia. Remember, they didn't have the facilities that we have, you know, and their hygiene was not on par to ours. So they said, well, maybe I looked, by the time I discovered it, I thought it had started on Sunday night, i.e. Monday. Really, it had started much earlier in the day. So here I am thinking that I only have two days of bleeding. So I only have to have six clean days. But really, it was three days of bleeding, which would mean I would have to have seven, right? So they want, and that really leads us to the third reason, which is kind of part and parcel of it. So they wanted to move away from some would need six clean days, Some would need seven clean days, and they mainstreamed it even further. Okay, so, um, yeah, so some people get, like, very, very frustrated and, like, worked up about Rabzerah, like, why was this necessary? So I wanted to point out two things. First of all, Rabzerah was enacting that which already existed, right? It came from amongst the women. It was a grassroots movement. It was really a bottom-up direction, and he just made it into halakha. Uh, and the other thing that I want to point out is that really between Reb Zayra and Rebbe, there wasn't that much of a shift. Reb Zayra mainstreams everything. But if let's just take one example. Rebbe said if a woman were to see for one day, right, she has to have six clean days. After Reb Zayra, you know, hit, um, at Chumad at Reb if a woman were to see for one day, she would have to have seven clean days. So it's not this huge difference, but... For whatever reason, people get like very fixated on like if we could only like roll backwards and like undo the Xera of then everything would be perfect. Well, no, not exactly. <laughs> we would still have a little bit of challenges over here, right? So now that so that brings us so with that you know third and final phase really brings us to where we are today, and I want to point something interesting out to just um you know kind of drive home. How kind of non negotiable this is, right? Because everything we discussed last episode was Nida Dorita. What well, we've discussed this episode and the Nida that we're keeping today is primarily under the category of Nida Dorabanan. Okay? Now remember that change was made. Why was Nida Dorabanan enacted? Why were those changes made in those various phases? Because we wanted to ensure that neither orita would be etched in stone and would be completely non-negotiable, right? So what I want to point out is that there's, you know, Bezrat Hashem Mashiach comes and all Toma will be erased from this world. And so this will be a non-conversation, you know. But um, the Mishnah tells us, there's a discussion in the Gemara, excuse me, that tells us that it's uh, customary to, before davening, open up with the Dvar Torah. And it says, don't open up with a Dvar Torah that's going to lead to a lot of conversation, like to sort of like an area of Torah that, that allows for opinion, so to speak. Rather, bring a halacha that's a, a non, non-negotiable, like it's a closed halacha. That's the, that's the term that it ter- uses, like a closed halacha. And what's the example? For example, it brings, you know, the, the whole story of Reb Zayra, um, uh, Reb Zeyra, B'not al etc., so it just gives us a sort of like this, like the case, you know, has been closed. And what we're doing today is not really open for discussion. It's not like, oh, but now we do have access to Chachamim. Oh, but now the Xayra has been made. And that's what we are keeping as Jewish women, you know, as we spoke about last week, you know, kind of like the, the final gatekeepers, you know, to the notion of, of, of Toma and Tara, et cetera. Okay. So that's in regards to the idea of when and how things changed. And Adasa, if we're talking about the idea of Nida Daraita and Nidaduraban, I think now would be a really great time to talk about what you had mentioned earlier with the notion of minhug.
0: Yeah, so I think I think it's important to to realize and I think for me when I first learned this, I think actually the source that really clarified this for me was the Ram was Dhamma, the Purishama where the Ram talks about the various categories of Tarshabalpet and um, this notion that there, there is, like, Torah was designed with these various components of daraisa, Durabanan, and, and Minhag. Um, and that, you know, the Torah itself sort of puts in place this concept of the Chachamim having the authority to be able to enact these um, stringencies in order to protect um, the, the halacha, that's Dariisa. And, you know, that's, the Torah itself even, like, has instructions, right? There's a person in the Torah that tells us this, that, that Chachamim have the authority to do this. Um, and that Amin, I think even the concept of a minhag is something that's even more powerful, which is that it's not just, like, this isn't wasn't told to us explicitly by Hashem in the Torah. And it's not just that this wasn't, you know... Um, you know, this was told to us by the Chachamim, who from their own sort of um, understanding of the development of, of of Judaism, you know, felt that this was necessary in order to protect Yiddishkeit. But Amirag is almost this concept of like a real grassroots <laughs> type of movement where the people themselves just sort of have this communal sense that this is sort of the right way to do things. And they and they sort of start doing something. And then once they start doing it, that becomes a part of Torah, becomes a part of halakha. And um, I think it's important also to realize that when we say the word minhag, the word minhag can be used loosely to refer to different things, right? We use the word minhag to refer to like just certain cultural things, right? Like eating a filter fish on Shabbos, right? And then we use the word minhag to refer to, right? <laughs> lots of yeah, lots of people, right? And then we refer to minhag to, The word middag, you know, in in the halachic sense, actually means things that are actually become halachically binding, like the example of Rabzera, right? And and there's many examples of that, right? Many, you know, certain mitzis aseshazman grama, which women do today, right? Which, you know, women are exempt from mitzis aseshazman grama, but once we accept it upon ourselves, and it became widespread across the entire Jewish community, that this is still something that women do, that becomes a part of halakha, becomes mainstream halakha. Um, you know, certain things that we do at the Seder, right? Dipping the karpas, you know, uh, at the Seder. That's a minhag, right? Yeah. And and it's not like that means that, you know, there there isn't a single Jew across the spectrum of of Judaism who doesn't do that at the Seder. Right. That's like everyone does that. Right. It's become part of mainstream halacha. But it it was what a minhag means is that it was initially it was initiated by the people. Right. Like we started it. Like this is something that we felt we want that made sense that like was appropriate you know, in terms of the way we wanted to practice our Judaism. And then that becomes a part of Taira, right? Menik Yisrael it becomes Taira itself. It becomes mainstream halakha. Um, and again, there are certain minhagim that are particular to individual communities, which are like, I guess, somewhat more flexible. But um, there is this concept of halacha, which is, uh, or of minhag, which is um, the entire Jewish community adopts it, and that becomes mainstream halacha. And, you know, I think it's something really powerful about that. Because um, on the one hand, people can think, okay, well, like Dyeri said, that's the real thing, and Button's a little more, you know, um, you know, not negotiable, negotiable. and minhug, whatever, you know. Um, and I think in a way it's the opposite, and like definitely in Hasidic, it talks about this concept a lot that there's something more yeah. valuable about Darman and than Dirasah in a certain sense. And again, that doesn't take away from the fact that halachically there's always Deirisa will always take priority, and there are differences in the way we treat a Dirasah and, and, and Minhag when there's conflicts in Halacha, right? Um, but still, like conceptually, um, there's a lot of you know value to those things that we as a people have taken upon ourselves, right? The things that the Chachamim have instituted, you know, taking their own initiative to to sort of, you know, contribute to the Torah. And even more like sort of meaningful is the fact that we as a people, right? Just the regular people can decide that there's something that we want to do or something that we want to initiate in our relationship with Hashem. And that could become a real part of Torah that becomes a lot binding. Um, you know, there's lots of areas at sneas that are like that, right? That like w- Jewish women just used to like. That's just what they would do, and that becomes like a part of the halakas of Um So I think there's something like to appreciate sort of the 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 meaning and the value of that that concept of a minhag, and how in a sense yeah, there's something even yeah. more valuable about the initiative that we take in in the relationship with Hashem, and how that that impact that that has um, in 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 Torah, in our yeah in our in our observance of Torah.
1: Yeah. Totally, totally. I actually heard like a really, it's a really simple example. You know, the idea of like when you're in a relationship, even a spousal relationship, right? So there's certain things that you ask for that you need that you request, you know, they have to verbalize. And a minog is sort of compared to when your spouse, when you're that deeply in touch with one another that he she can intuit without any words being exchanged, you know, what the other person needs, and is able to rise to that and to provide that, you know. So Doraite is, like you said, it's much more from a bottom-up approach, you know, coming from Lamyla, and then this is what you have to do. And Lamyna is when we reciprocate, when we just sort of like sense intuitively that this is how we want to, to show up in our relationship. And I have to tell you that the first time that I saw these sources inside, I mean years ago, Um, And I I was like, what? This came from amongst the women? It like it really shifted my relationship with this mitzvah. Like I suddenly felt like, oh, you know, (laughs) I don't know. It, like, not that I had resentment, but there was sort of like a like a remove. And when I understood that it actually came from the women, for me personally, it like it really made like some kind of shift inside. Okay, so that concludes, I think, this particular episode in regards to the, who, the when, where, and the how of why things shifted, okay? Um, yeah, and follow us in the next episode where we're going to talk about the next phase of the Tara process as we knew it and as we know it today, i.e. the Shivanakim.